For you all that think I talk fast, I showed that video just for you. <laughs> just so you could see that maybe I don't talk as fast as, as I could. I read an article uh, several years ago, and, and just reminded of it this week, that in 1929... Uh, the U.S. economy uh, was clearly uh, not recovering from the roaring 20s. The, the uh, economic boom of the 20s is headed the other way. Uh, 1929, the stock market crashed in the United States, and, and almost every other major economy in the world began to plummet into the Great Depression. And uh, there, was a, there was this depressing time. Economists were, were trying to scratch their heads and figure out what in the world has happened and, and how do we recover from this. And this lasted for for several years, but there was one economist um, in England who was, even though he knew this was going to be a difficult time, he remained optimistic about the future and the economies of the future. And so in 1930, a guy named John Keynes wrote an essay, and he called it The Economic Possibilities of Our Grandchildren, or For Our Grandchildren. And he argued in this article uh, that the past 10 years, so in the 1920s, the past 10 years had been marked by such amazing invention, such amazing um, technology and innovation, that almost every aspect of life had changed, that almost every aspect of life had been touched by these inventions or these things that had been and invented this technology, uh, almost everything had changed within the past 10 years, and everything was now much more efficient. And basically, he said that we're able to do office work faster, we're able to farm with more productivity, and even our household chores uh, could be done in a fraction of the time that they used to take. And so uh, he came up with this idea that because of these uh, rates of change, because things had changed so quickly in those 10-year times, and the, he, he saw that continue, continuing in the future, he said, quote, that we may be able to perform all the operations of agriculture, mining, and manufacturing with a quarter of the human effort to which we are accustomed to. And he thought that would happen within his lifetime, that we could do all that we do now with the fourth amount of the human labor that we have. And, and so this increased efficiency, he says, obviously the one thing it's going to lead to is a, um, a time that we don't need to work 40 hours a week. And so he had this prediction, he wrote in this article, that he predicted that by the time his grandchildren um, became to the workforce, so within 100 years, and he kind of put it, stretched it to 100 years, that people would work somewhere between 10 and 15 hours a week. That would be your work week. And, and you could do that either one of two ways. You could either work three shifts five days a week, or if you didn't want to work that, you could work two shifts for five to seven hours and have two work days and, and five weekend days. All right? So that's how he saw the future. That's what he was predicting. And while most of us that are sitting here are like, man, that would be wonderful, he was a little concerned about this. Because he said that uh, this, this lack of work, this amount of time that we spend at work, we're just not used to it. And if we don't have to spend um, 40 hours a week, or in that time more than 40 hours a week, if we only have to work 10 to 15 hours a week, then we're going to have this major problem. In fact, he was kind of nervous about it. Let me read to you what he wrote. He said that when we get to the point where we only have to work 10 to 15 hours a week and all of our chores are taken care of, he said this. He says, thus... For the first time since his creation, man will be faced with his real, his permanent problem. Get this. How to use his freedom from pressing economic cares. How to occupy the leisure which science and compounded interest has won him in, the wise, in a wise and agreeable well way. His biggest fear was that within a hundred years of 1930... That our biggest concern was going to be how to spend our free time. 
that we were just going to be overwhelmed with how much time we were going to have on our hands, that we'd have all this free time. And he was so nervous that we as humans wouldn't be able to handle that, that he was afraid people would honestly have nervous breakdowns because they didn't have enough to do, because they wouldn't have enough to occupy their time, that they couldn't find a, a significant, meaningful way to occupy all their free times. And he literally said, I'm kind of afraid that people are going to have these nervous breakdowns because they're going to have so much time on their hand and so little to do. And he gave evidence of that, and, and, and he said there, there are people who are well-affluent, well-affluent people who, who, ladies, they're not doing their tasks, they're not having to do the chores, they're not having to do all this stuff at home, and so they have nervous breakdowns because they don't have anything to occupy their time. And he says, if that's happening now, imagine what the future's going to look like. Imagine 100 years when we're only working 10 to 15 hours a week, and we have all this free time. He said, people are literally going to have nervous breakdowns because they have too much time on their hands. Now, I don't know if you've checked the clock lately, but it's 2022. Unless something drastically changes in the next eight years, I'm going to have to call his bluff a little bit. I'm going to say that maybe he missed the mark. Because as I look at my schedule, and, I, and I've talked with many of you, and I see kind of your busyness and your schedulingness, my, my last thought is, I don't know any of us that are sitting in this room or any of you that are watching online that are having a nervous breakdown because you have too much time on your hands. I don't know anybody that's having a nervous breakdown because you can't occupy all the time that you're just sitting around. I don't know anybody that's wringing their hands and be like, well, what am I going to do with the next 24 hours? Like, I just, I just have nothing to occupy myself with. What am I going to do with the next week? I, I've only got to work 10 hours this week. And so what am I going to do with all the rest of my time this week? How am I going to do anything? And, and, and when I look at our schedules and I look at all this going on, I don't know anybody who is being driven crazy by their lack of stuff to do. In fact, what I find is quite the opposite. The vast majority of us, uh, we feel like we don't have enough time on our hands. We feel like our biggest struggle is not filling up time. It's that we have too little time, that, that most of us are trying to wring our hands to get all that we can done within this precious time. And so the question is not what are we going to do with our free time, the question is, what are we investing the time that we have in? What is it that we invest these precious little moments in? The real question is, what do we prioritize with our time? Because as the video said, that all of us get the same 24 hours in a day. No more, no less. It doesn't matter how rich you are or poor you are. You cannot buy more. You cannot work for more. You have the same amount of time as everybody else. And so the question becomes, how do we invest that time? What is it that God would want us to invest that time in, in each and every day? And so this morning, we're going to look at Luke chapter 10. And it's a story that some of you are familiar with. And if you actually you were in uh, the Wednesday night Bible study, it's a story that you should be familiar with because you just covered it this past Wednesday night. I didn't realize that. Uh, that you guys were on that text when I started preparing the sermon. So guess what? Some of you need this a double dose, apparently, so get ready for it. But this idea of how are we going to invest our time, what is it that God says, and Jesus says, this is what you should focus on. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 10, at the very end of the chapter. We'll start in verse 38, and we'll read down through verse 42. But Luke chapter 10, verse 38, says this, While they were traveling, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister named Mary, who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and she came up and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister had left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. Verse 41, the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. Let's pray together. 
Father, we thank you so much for today. God, we thank you that this, this is our story. God, that this is our song. God, that we can praise our Savior all the day long. God, that you are mighty to save, and we have this blessed assurance because we stand on the solid rock, Father. God, we thank you that we can come together to worship you, and we thank you that we can come together, God, to serve you and to be who you called us to be, Father. God, I pray that our hearts are already lifted. We are already encouraged by the words that we have sang because we have sang them together, Father. God, I pray that we are already drawn into your presence and we feel closer to you and we feel your presence in this moment, Father. God, I pray that we find ourselves exactly as Mary did in this passage. God, for these moments, God, let us sit at your feet. God, let us be your students. God, let us submit to your word this morning so that you can have your way in our life, Father. And God, for some of us, this will be a very comforting message. And for some of us, it will be a very challenging message, God. For some of us, it's going to be a message that we have to change things in our life. But God, I pray that we don't let anything else be the distraction from this moment. That we get to sit at your feet. To be fed your word this morning, Father. And so, God, I pray that you speak. God, I pray with open heart and open ears that we listen. And God, that when we're done at your feet... We are ready to be changed by you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As a teenager, uh, Edwin Pacheco, uh, which is a fun name to say. It sounds like paycheck, but it's Pacheco. He, he was introduced to a young lady um, named Melinda. And he found out that him and Melinda uh, grew up in the same area. Both of them grew up in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, they, they went to different schools because uh, Edwin had gotten some trouble and got thrown out of his school. And so they went to different schools. Uh, but what they found as they were introduced, they kind of spent some time together. They found out they had some things in common. They found out that... Uh, uh, both of them uh, kind of grew up in families that went to church, and, and even though they their family went to church, it made it very they were very different than the rest of the families living around them. They lived in an area that was not known for church attendance. They lived in an area that was not known for uh, getting up and going to church on Sunday morning. So Melinda's family got up and did this. Uh, Edwin's family got up and did this, and and this was their custom. This is what they were used to, and so they they kind of began to talk and share life with each other, and they eventually got married and. Uh, they, they continued kind of making their own family. They got married. They had two daughters. And uh, they, they were kind of building this life on their own. And uh, they recalled that there were times in their life they didn't have a lot to work with. They, they, they were tough years. Uh, and they held on to their faith. And they kept growing their relationship and growing in their relationship with Christ. And so one day, Edward uh, was praying. And, and he was kind of, um, kind of shocked by what God was telling him. And he talked to his wife and he said, listen, Melinda, I've I got to tell you something. I really feel like God is calling me into the ministry. I, I really feel like God has called me to be a missionary. I really feel like that, that God is wanting me to go somewhere and do something significant with my life. That I love our life here and I love what we're doing. I love that we get up and we take our kids to church. And I love all of that. He said, but I really just feel like... God has called me to a place that needs to hear the gospel. A place where, where we can make a difference as a family that we can share the gospel with people's lives and we can see the difference that it makes. And, and so I don't know where that's at. 
And so Melinda, she was automatically worried about this because she had grew up in church and she had heard about missionaries and she knew missionaries who went off to faraway countries and missionaries who went to, to around the world and had to learn different languages. And Melinda had never left Brooklyn, New York. And in her mind, she's going to get dropped off in the middle of jungle somewhere because this is where God needs her husband to be. And she said, listen, I don't know what God is telling you, but wherever he tells you to go, I'll go. And so Edward said, that's what I need to hear. I'm going to be honest with you, honey. I don't know where God is telling us to go. I don't know where God is calling us to go. And so I want you to pray with me about that. And so over the next few weeks, they were praying about where they should go and, and praying about where God would give them a heart to go. And so Edward kept going with his same life. He kept going to work. He kept going to church. And, and so as those weeks progressed, Edward's walk to the, the subway and Edward's uh, getting on the subway to go to work, he started to notice some things differently. As he walked those same streets every single day, he suddenly noticed the drug addicts hanging out on this corner. And he kept walking. He suddenly noticed all the alcohol bottles that were strung all over this sidewalk. He noticed kids that were over here and just living in poverty and just families that were strung out and had nothing to their name. And he walked these streets and he suddenly, as he walked through these streets, he felt a darkness and he felt a depression that just kind of settled over him. He went on to work that day and he came back and he he walked through those same things. And he noticed that same situation. The next day he did the same thing. And every day he just felt a darker, deeper depression kind of set in over him as he made that walk. And so finally one day after work, he came in his house and he walked over to his wife and he says, Melinda, I have it. She said, what? He says, I have the place that God has called us to go. I have the place that God is telling us we need to make a difference. And in Melinda's mind, she's thinking, oh boy, here we go. I'm getting ready to jump on an airplane. And she says, all right, tell me where it is. And so he took his wife and he took her to the front door and he opened the front door. And she was like, well, I didn't know we were leaving right now. I wasn't quite prepared. Like I need to like pack some suitcases. And he opened the front door and he says, it's right here. And she said, what do you, what do you mean it's right here? This is our neighborhood. And he said, if there's any place in the world that needs the gospel, it is right here in our own front yard. He said, look over there. There's a bunch of drug addicts over there. These guys over here, they've been drunk for three days straight. These kids over here, they don't even know who their family is. And they're raised in poverty. If anybody needs to know the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the people that God has put around us and has put us right smack dab in the middle. And she said, I thought you wanted to go to a place where you could make a difference. And he said, if I can't make a difference here, I can't make a difference anywhere. This is the place that God has put us to be a light right here. And so about 10 years ago, Edward and his wife, Melinda, mainly Edward, started a church called Redeemer Church. And, and they started simply by giving out food. And he went to get ministry training uh, through the North American Mission Board, and they planted this Redeemer Church um, in, in Red Hook, I think it's called Red Hook, uh, neighborhood, which is one of the toughest, roughest areas in New York City. And you know how they did it? They started handing out food from their own house. The North American Mission Board allowed them to, to get food, and they just started handing out food. They'd walk down the street, and they'd hand out food bags to anybody that they saw that needed them. That church has grown, and that church has multiplied. And now, because of COVID and the way that the restrictions hit New York, they had to rethink their entire idea of what church is, and they had to rethink of how do we be the church without being in the church. And it opened their eyes, and they have literally given away hundreds of thousands of pounds of food to their neighbors. This is the place that God has put us to make a difference in the world. And when I read this story, 
about these two sisters, I kind of feel like Martha has this same attitude as we're introduced to her in Luke 10. This is the place that God has put her in. This is the place where she can serve Him and be used by Him. Now, some of you may be familiar with Martha. There's two stories that mention her. There's this one in Luke chapter 10. There's another one in John chapter 11. And most of you are probably more familiar with John chapter 11. It talks about uh, Martha and her sister Mary, but there it introduces her brother Lazarus. And that's the story where Lazarus dies and, and Jesus shows up and brings him back to life. So we're very familiar with that story. Uh, but kind of chronologically, that story is much later in the overall narrative. Then Luke chapter 10, the story we're in, this is kind of the introduction. And, and we kind of get this impression, especially even from the very first verse that we read in verse 38, this is kind of one of those first encounters with Jesus. In fact, this may be the first encounter that Martha has with Jesus. Right? And we get that because of the language that's used in verse 38. Right? And so this is kind of the start of their friendship. And so let me kind of give you the context because this is a beautiful idea here. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out 70 missionaries. He sends them out in pairs. He sends them out by twos, um, kind of the reverse of Noah's Ark where he brings them in by twos. Jesus sends them out by twos. Right? So he sends them out by twos and he tells them to go spread the gospel. Go spread this amazing message. Go do these amazing things. Right? And so at the very beginning of Luke chapter 10, that's what you have. You have these 70 people being sent out to spread the gospel, sent out to spread his message. And then you have them coming back, and they are so excited. Man, there's a whole area is a buzz, because now all these different towns are, being, are hearing about the gospel. All these different places, all these different villages, they're all getting to hear the story of Jesus and what Jesus is doing, what Jesus has come to do, and the power that Jesus has. Right? And so there's all this buzz. Well, you can imagine that anytime there's a buzz, anytime there's something new, somebody's not going to be very excited about it. And one of those people that was not very excited about it was a religious expert. He was a a legal expert in the religious law. And he was kind of nervous that Jesus was becoming too popular, going to take some of his influence away, that he was going to take all of his TikTok followers and all that stuff. He was worried that Jesus was going to show up and all his accounts were going to be wiped out. All right, That's what he's worried about. None of that's really true. But he was worried that Jesus was going to have too much influence. And so he kind of tests Jesus. And he asked Jesus this question to test him. Not to get a sincere answer, but to test him. He asked him this question in Luke 10. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And the idea is doing something, because in the Jewish system, it was all about doing something. You have to do something to get access to God. You have to do something to get forgiveness. And so he asked this question, what do I have to do to get eternal life? And so then he, Jesus answers that question with a very familiar story of the Good Samaritan. Right? And most of you are familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan. This guy gets robbed, and this Levite walks right past him, and he's beat up, and he's bloody on the side of the street. This Levite walks past him, this priest walks past him, and finally this Samaritan, who's this enemy, walks past him, goes over and helps him, picks him up, manages his wounds, takes him off to an end, pays for all that needs to happen, and then he says, which one of these was a neighbor? And the legal expert, the, the lawyer, the, the re religious official, he says, well, the, the one who did good to him, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, yeah, you're exactly right. Now you go and do the same thing. And that's right before we get introduced to Martha and Mary. That, that's the story that happens right before it. And I tell you all that background because it makes the story of Martha so much intense, so more beautiful if we understand the context. And so we get to verse 38, and Jesus is traveling not with the 70. He's probably back down to the 12 at this point. But as we get to verse 38, it says that while they were traveling, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha 
welcomed him into her home, right? And the description of this woman named Martha is why we kind of think this was kind of their first introduction, their first meeting, because they have a friendship. Their friendship kind of blooms over the years, and he loves her, and he loves Mary, and he loves Lazarus. They're all friends by the time we reach John chapter 11. But in Luke chapter 10, she's just referred to as a woman named Martha. And so if they were very familiar, if they were on kind of the same page they were in, in John's gospel, he probably would have just said he went to Martha's house. And we would all know, right? But the fact that he describes her as this woman named Martha gives us this impression this friendship is not solidified. This friendship is not something solid. This is not something that, that she is known for. This is not something that, that has happened kind of repeatedly. This may be the first time, but the point is that she welcomes Jesus into her home. That This is significant, and there's something that we should mention here. There's no mention of a husband anytime Martha is mentioned. Right? So there's a good chance that she probably is a widow. Right? That's about the only way that she would have and be in charge of a home. There's no mention of a husband in any story that she's connected with. And so she's probably a widow, meaning that she may not have been from this village. She may not have been from Bethany. She may have moved there when she got married. And when her husband died, then she just stayed there. Because if she moved anywhere else, she would have moved back home with her parents or with her rest of her family. But she doesn't. She stays in her house even after her husband died. This is the place that God put her. Right? She may not have been there by choice. She was either born there or she moved there because she was married to this certain individual. Right? And now he's gone. And so this becomes her house. And so she opens up her house. She allows Jesus to stay in. And not just Jesus, but his disciples who are traveling with him. And so this is a picture of what hospitality looks like. This is living out the story of the Good Samaritan. This is what it looks like to be a good neighbor to help someone in need. And so I told you all that background of why we talk about the Good Samaritan. Because she's living it out. The man to this religious leader is, hey, you go and do this. And the very next person we're introduced to in the gospel is somebody who's doing it. Somebody who opens up their home and somebody says, hey, you need something? Here I am. You need this? Here it is. All right? And so I don't want you to miss the significance of this event and her placement. She lives in this small town called Bethany. It's just a couple miles east of Jerusalem, and it's probably, like I said, not by choice. She probably either grew up there or she probably lived there with her husband and her husband died. But this is the place that God has put her. Right? Now, what's significant about Bethany? Bethany is just a few miles, really within walking distance, of Jerusalem. So imagine if Jesus is spending a lot of time in Jerusalem... He's probably coming through Bethany. So as you read through the Gospels and all those times he goes to the temple and all those times that he, he's debating religious leaders in Jerusalem, guess where he probably spends his time? In Bethany, traveling through Bethany. Right? It was probably in Bethany that he came to the village where he got on the donkey to ride, in, ride into Jerusalem for the last time with a triumphal entry. It's probably in Bethany that he got that donkey. It's in Bethany that it raises Lazarus and spreads the news into Jerusalem. Bethany is strategically placed right next to Jerusalem, this small town that Jesus can get away from people, but also be the center of everything. And so this is the place that Martha's at. This is where her home is at. This is where she has is, is been placed by God's choice. And it's not by accident. It's not by chance that she's there. This is where God has placed her. And this is where she believes that God is going to make a difference. You see, we don't read about Martha being one of the 70 that gets sent out. There are 70 that are sent out. Martha is not one of those. She stays home. Why? Because the place that she can make a difference is right where God has placed her. And what does she do? She opens up her home to be used by Christ. 
And so let me ask us as a church and, and us as individuals, when was the last time you thought of your house like that? This is the place that God has given me. This is the place where God has put me. And you can say you bought it. You can say that you planned it. You can say you designed it. You can say whatever you want to. But the reality is that God placed you in a specific area. He placed you, some of us, in a specific neighborhood. He's placed our church in a specific place for a reason. He's put you here to be used for Him. And so when was the last time you thought of your house as a tool for the gospel and spreading the gospel? When was the last time you thought as your dining room table or your kitchen table or maybe your placement, wherever you sit down, when was the last time you thought of sharing a meal with people who you may not be that familiar with just for the purpose of sharing the gospel and professing and moving the gospel out? You see, as she does this, she's allowing the gospel to continue to spread. As she does this, This is her mission field. This is how she's going to serve. And she allows her home to be used for evangelism. She allows it to be used as kind of a mission base. And this is the place where she is at. And so when was the last time we thought of where we lived, our house, our home, to be a light in a ministry center? You see, we bought these buildings over here in in Cleveland. We've called them the the mission center. We've called them uh, different names. We've called them all kinds of different things. And we said, well, we're going to do ministry out of there. But when was the last time you thought... I don't have to go somewhere to do ministry. I can do ministry right here. When was the last time you opened your front door and said, this is the place where God has called me to make a difference? Let me take it outside of your home. When was the last time you went to your job or you went to class and you walked into your job and said, this is the place that God has called me to make a difference? This is the place where God has put me so that I can be used by Him. You see, whatever job you have, whatever classes you're taking, you're not there by accident. God has placed you there and He's put you there so you can be a lighthouse, so that you can be a witness, so that you can change the world around you, even just by being a witness just to the few people you come in contact with. You are there, wherever there is, to be a light and change that area. And so it's true for us as a church, we are here this morning because this is where God has placed us. You know, God could have placed Cornerstone Baptist Church anywhere else. He didn't need this particular place, but He placed us here so that we can be a light to Western Rowan County and Eastern Iredale County. He put us here so that we can be a witness in this area. And yeah, we're going to send missionaries. We're going to talk about sending missionaries. We're going to do that. We're going to go witness and, and be missions and, and be missional in other places. But never forget that God has you here in this place, in this time, to be used by Him. And so every time you open your front door, this is the place. Every time you sit down at your table, this is the place. Every time you go to your job, your classes, this is the place where I can be on mission right now in this moment. It's not saying He won't call you somewhere else, but in this moment, this is the place where He has you because this is the place He wants you to be used. Right? And so Martha understands she values the purpose of her placement, but her sister She values something else. She sees the importance not just of their place, but a certain posture and certain position that she's in. You see, Mary is her sister, and it's quite this interesting story about her in verse 39. By the way, you you read a lot about Mary. There's lots of different Marys in the Bible, so everyone you read about is not the same one, uh, just so we're clear. Uh, But in verse 39, it describes her this way. It says that she, being Martha, she had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. You see, Mary's position at the feet of Jesus, this is an amazing moment. And this is one of those like, 
You don't understand how amazing this is until you really dig into it. And it's amazing because this is so countercultural for anything that was going on in the first century. Right? That a Jewish rabbi would not let a female sit at their feet. In fact, many Jewish rabbis thought that it was useless to even try to teach a female. Right? That you didn't teach them. You didn't, and if you did teach them, you made them stand in the back. They were supposed to stand on the outside edges of the room. They sure weren't going to be at the, at the front. They weren't going to be close in position to you. And so here you have Jesus allowing Mary to sit at his feet and understand this is countercultural. This is so different. And no other Jewish rabbi in, in the first century would allow this position to take place. They would have either thrown her up out of that position or they would have some other guy remove her or they'd have her thrown out of the whole house because of how rude and how disrespectful for her to come and think that she had a priority here, that she could be included here. This was a man's space was their idea. Can I tell you something that, that the world won't tell you? The world will tell you that the Bible is oppressive. The world will tell you the Bible is chauvinistic, that it's so anti-feminine. Can I share with you, there is not a person in history that's been more inclusive of females and women than Jesus Christ. And here we have that example. He's letting this lady sit at his feet. Why? Because it's a picture that the gospel is open to anyone at any time. It is a picture that the gospel is wide open. There is always room at his feet. It's a picture that the gospel has equal access, that his words and his message, that they're not reserved for one group of people. They're not reserved for just this certain group. Nobody is treated as second class or less important. Everybody's welcome at the feet of Jesus, regardless of where they came from, what shade their skin is, what gender they were born into. And it doesn't matter. The invitation of Christ, it is open to everyone. And so don't miss this, that she's sitting at his feet in a time when nobody else would let this happen. Jesus does. Why? Because the doors of the gospel are open to everybody. You see, her position is remarkable because it's countercultural, but it's also remarkable because it shows us about her what it is that she values. You see, to sit at the feet of Jesus implies that she is ready to accept and obey what he says. To sit at Jesus' feet implies that she's ready to be submissive, that her rebellion against him is done. To sit at the feet of Jesus implies that she has faith in who Jesus is and she's ready to intently listen to what he has to teach her. There's this interest that she has, that, that she hungers for the words that he is speaking. And I don't know if you've ever had a meal that is just so good. That you, you've ever had this meal or a snack or anything like that, that, that every bite of it just makes you want more of it. And then when you're finished with it, like you're just so stuffed, you're, you're just so satisfied. But as soon as you walk away, some of you are mouth-watering right now. Like I can see you like licking your lips. You're already thinking about lunch. I've got you distracted. But if you've ever had this kind of meal that just is, man, it just makes you want more of it. And maybe it's a restaurant you've been to and something you've ate there. And, and then you just can't wait for that moment to get back. Like, you just can't wait. If anybody says, hey, where should we go for lunch? Like, you've got that answer already. Where should we go out to eat? Man, you know it. And you know exactly where you're going to order. Because the time you had it was so good that you just crave it. You just hunger for it. That's how we, we picture Mar Mary here at the feet of Jesus. That she just has this intense desire to be feeding on His Word. To hear every drop to hang on every word that he has. Psalm 19, verse 10, is talking about this desire for God's word. And David writes it this way. He says, They, God's word, are more desirable than gold, the abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey, which comes from the honeycomb. Let me ask you this. Not only do we see our homes as a place to be used by ministry, but let me ask you, when was the last time you desired God's word like that? 
When did you want to sit at His feet? And, and when did you want to be His student and learn from Him? When did you hang on every word and hold on to every opportunity? And when the opportunity ended, you just couldn't wait to get back to that space. You see, one of the things that I loved about doing youth was taking kids to camp. And, and I'm a product of youth camp. Like I've been to youth camp and kids camp Probably more years than I haven't now, right? Either there's a youth or an adult or a chaperone. And just, I love going to camp. And some of you are products of, like, we have these moments and these, these intense highs of camp. And we feel those things. And then we come back to reality. And we kind of had this taste of the goodness of God at camp. We kind of had this taste of, of what it was like to be fed at camp and worship at camp. And, man, we just can't wait. In fact, you can talk to my kids right now. They're already excited about camp coming up in July. They're, they're already talking about it, right? And we had this experience where we got so close to Christ, and then we kind of fell back into a reality, and we just can't wait to get back there. So let me ask you as adults, when was the last time you had such an intense moment with Christ, you just couldn't wait to get back there? You craved it. You desired it more than honey from a honeycomb, more than the abundance of gold. You wanted this one thing more than anything else. And if you could hear God's word, if you could just hold on to his word, if you could just listen to every word that was dripping from his mouth, you would sit at his feet forever. And I want to remind you that you have that. You see, what Mary is listening to, we have written in Scripture for us. And yet, how often do we take this for granted? How often do we come into church on a Sunday morning, we'll open up our Bibles because He tells us to, and then we put it on a shelf the rest of the week? Can I share with you something I told our Wednesday night classes a couple weeks ago? There are people literally in this world today dying to get their hands on a copy of what you put on a shelf on Monday and didn't pick up again until Sunday morning. There are people dying, craving, hunger for the Word, and yet we have it in abundance. And what do we do with it? We neglect it time and time and time again. You see, some of us need to get back to this position of being at the feet of Jesus. Some of us need to spend these opportunities here at His feet, saying, Jesus, You teach me. Let me be submissive to You. God, I humbly submit to what Your Word says. You see, when we don't value and we don't see the privilege of the position... It's because most of the time we've misaligned our priorities. These priorities in our life, this is something that comes before everything else. It, it's something that precedes everything else. It's the head of everything else. It, it's what is supreme and foundational that everything else follows. And so we talk about priorities and, and we talk about what's most important in your life. And we talk about all these things. And if you ask different people, they're going to give you a whole list of different priorities. But what if I told you you didn't need a list of priorities? You needed one priority. You see, that's the message, and that's the contrast that we see in this last set of verses. There is one priority. There is one thing that we need to be focused on. And Martha, she, she welcomes Jesus into her home. She does this great thing. She shows Him and the disciples' hospitalities. And, and so there's this great message of being there and being present with Him. And then she gets distracted. And, and that's not my word. That's Scripture's word for it. In fact, if we look at uh, verse 40, that's the word that they use for her. In verse 40, Luke says this, But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. And she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. By the way, you want another inclusive moment in Christ's ministry? Not only does he let a woman sit at his feet, but then he lets this woman walk up and be like, Jesus, don't you care that I'm doing all this work for you? 
Like, no other rabbi is going to put up with that, all right? Let's just be clear. Like, she would have been thrown out and lots of different things happened to her. But she, she walks up and she asks, and this word distracted here, it means uh, it's used only this time in the New Testament, but it means to be overly busy, to be drawn away either mentally or physically. And one author describes it as being troubled or upset as the result of being overly occupied. And so she's overly occupied with many tasks, lots of different things. There's, there's so much going on, so much that she's got to get going. There's a meal that she's got to get ready. There's, there's places now. Now she's got this house full of guests that she wasn't expecting. And, and so hyper mode kicks in, like she's shoving stuff under the bed because that's what you do when guests show up unexpectedly, right? Like you open the closet, you shove all the kids' toys in there underneath the bed. And, and then you like, you got to figure out now that not just one person, like you got all these people where are all these people going to sleep? And like, what kind of bedding are we going to have? And, and, and how are we going to rearrange all this? And she probably doesn't have kids, so she's probably not doing that. But she's trying to figure out like where all this is going to happen. And so she's running around. She's fretting. She's got to get the meal ready. She's got to get the, the sleeping arrangements. And then not only that, she's responsible for breakfast in the morning. So plan ahead and get all that and, and get tomorrow's schedule. And what time are we going to wake these guys up? And what time do they need to be on the road? And what time are we going to serve breakfast? And what time do I need to start the eggs? And all of this stuff is going on in her head. And some of you ladies are sitting here right now and you're like, yes, overly committed, overly distracted. You've just summed me up right there. And some of us guys are like, I'm going to bed at nine. I'll see you at at eight in the morning. The end. All right. Not overly distracted. But some of you guys, it's okay. We're in that same boat. Like we've got these categories. We've got all these logistics we're trying to figure out. And, and so it may not be in, in the Jesus come to visit your home, but you may try to be figuring all this stuff out. It may be at work. It may be at church. It may be in ministry. Maybe all these different stuff. But here she is. She's distracted with all of these different things. I underlined in that verse that she was distracted by these many things. And so like I said, many of you are sitting here this morning and, and you're like, yes. This is me. She's overly busy to the point that she gets upset and she's upset at Mary. And then she's kind of upset that Jesus doesn't care about it. And so I can tell you that I've sat in marriage counseling with lots of couples. And this is where it starts. Don't you see all that I'm doing? Some of you don't nudge your husbands right now, okay? Don't you realize all that goes on in the backgrounds? And the husband's like, yeah, I get it. I see it. And so she jumps on Jesus, but the reality is that her problem was not with Jesus. Her reality is that her problem wasn't really with Mary, even though she's mad at Mary, because Mary's not doing anything. She jumps on and she's like, Jesus, don't you understand all that I'm doing to make you comfortable? Don't you understand all that I'm doing to make all this work? And yet my sister's sitting at your feet doing nothing. You see, the problem wasn't Jesus. The problem wasn't Mary. The problem was Martha was distracted with many things overly committing herself to so many things instead of focusing on something else. And so let me look, let me just continue in this story because in verse 41, Martha gets a very different response than what she's expecting. Now, because I imagine that any other Jewish rabbi would have been like, you're right, Mary, get up off your rear end and go get to work. But that's not the answer that Jesus gives in verse 41. Jesus looks at Martha and the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You're worried and upset about many things. There's that word again, many things. But there's only one thing that has to make a difference. There's not all of these things. There's not all these distractions that are going on. See, Martha's problem was Martha, that, that she was overly distracted with all of these things. And we read on in the last verse, in verse 42. Jesus says that you're distracted, you're upset about many things. In verse 42, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice and it all and it will not be taken away 
from her. See, there's this contrast. Martha, you, you're distracted. You have all of these many things going on. And for Martha, there's one thing. And I want you to real quick take a little journey with me through the Bible, this idea of one thing. And David writes about one thing in Psalm verse 27, verse 4. He talks about it this way. He says, I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. What's the one thing? To be in the presence of God, to seek after Him, to gaze into this beauty and understand the greatness that He is. He, he ta- Jesus talks about this at another time in Luke chapter 18. He's talking to the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler says, what do I have to do to get eternal life? And he says, keep all the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, yeah, yeah, I've done all those things. And I want you to see Jesus' response in Luke chapter 18, verse 22. And Jesus heard this, and he told him, you still lack one thing. Sell what you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. What is the one thing? This world has nothing for you. I am all that you need. Come follow me. Be with me. And finally, Paul picks it up in Philippians chapter 3. In verse 13 and 14, he says, Brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is ahead and reaching forward to what, or excuse me, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. What is the one thing? To pursue Christ. To be with Christ. The one thing is to be with Christ. To follow Him. To chase after Him. To pursue Him. Because He is the prize. We have all of these priorities. We have all of these things in our life. And yet we cannot find the time for the most important thing. What Jesus is saying, listen, all of these things are distracting you from the one thing that's most important. And the one thing that's most important is me. You see, we came to church this morning. Or you're watching online this morning. And for many of you, I understand that to get here, there was a lot of things that had to happen to get here this morning. I'm going to be perfectly transparent with you this morning. I understand that because I've seen it happen. I don't experience it because, oddly enough, I don't get kids up and ready for church in the morning. My wife does a beautiful job at that. I just get up and I come to church, okay? And so I've seen it happen. I've seen all the many things. And so I, I kind of feel like my wife sometimes could be like, Michael, don't you see what all is going on? Don't you see what it takes? And I get this beautiful privilege of walking into church and be like, this is what it's about. You see, when we get ready for church, when we come to church, it's not about all the other stuff that goes on. As much as I love all the ministries and all the things that we do, as much as I love all the plans that we're making of a coffee shop and a ministry center and a a counseling center, as much as I love the lights that we're going to have on the softball field, as much as I love the idea of us getting a van and starting a van ministry, as much as I love us doing a new entryway, none of that matters if it's not rooted and focused here at the feet of Jesus. It's all distractions. If we don't keep Jesus, the most important thing. You see, we can open a coffee shop But if we don't have conversations about Jesus in a coffee shop, it's a waste of our time. It's a distraction from the gospel. We can put lights on a softball field. But if we don't go to the softball field to try to reach folks that are on the softball field for the gospel, then we've wasted a lot of time and a lot of money. It's a distraction. We can have a Wana. We can have Upward. We can have a van ministry. We can do a million different things. But if it doesn't bring us to the feet of Jesus, it's all a distraction. You see, the one I want you to walk away from here is two things. Number one. The feet of Jesus is where we need to spend our time. 
the feet of Jesus and the pursuit of Jesus is more important than anything else that a church or you or any ministry will do. I read this, that some people will say that we need revival. What we need to do is sit at the feet of Jesus and hear His Word. Other people will say what we need is unity. But what we need to do is sit at the feet of Jesus and hear His Word. Some people will say that we need to win arguments. But what we need to do is sit at the feet of Jesus and hear His Word. Other people will say we need to be out and on mission and reaching the world. But what we need to do is sit at the feet of Jesus and hear His Word. Because once we sit at the feet of Jesus, then all of those other things will fall into place. Once we sit at the feet of Jesus and hear His Word, then we will have a desire for revival. It will produce revival. When we sit at the feet of Jesus, we will have the unity we need. When we sit at the feet of Jesus, we'll know the words to win the arguments. When we sit at the feet of Jesus, there'll be such a passionate desire to go out and share Him with the rest of the world. And it all starts because we're at the feet of Jesus. Listen to me. The main priority of your life is not all the stuff. It's the one thing. To pursue Him with everything that you have. But see, there's this second thing that I want us to leave with here this morning. In our pursuit of Jesus, understand that we pursue people as well. We talked about Martha's placement. How God placed her in a certain thing, in a certain position. And I want you to notice, this is what happens sometimes. We realize that and we start to invite folks into our house. And then we become distracted. We've invited folks to church. And we invite folks to our kitchen table. And then we get distracted. And we forget to be intentionally with them. We forget to intentionally be not only at the feet of Jesus, but to bring them to the feet of Jesus. We forget to intentionally be present with them in that moment. So wherever your place is at, it is your place of ministry to bring people to the feet of Jesus. And you cannot do that if you're distracted by all the other stuff. Listen, your job is really a distraction from your mission field of Christ. Don't tell your boss I said that. Actually, go tell your boss I said that. That's fine. But your job is second to the commands of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right? It is a mission field for you. And to do that, we've got to be present with the people. You see, we can serve people. We can hand people stuff. We can walk by people. And we can do all this stuff. But to be present with them, to sit with them, is what makes a difference in their life. The reason we're opening a coffee shop is not to sell coffee. It's to sit down and be with people. The reason we're putting lights on a softball field is not so we can play more games at night. It's so that we can be with people. The reason we want to start a van ministry and have a van is not so we can have a bigger church. It's so that we can be with people. The reason we want to have a bigger entryway is so that we can be with people. Present with them. In the moment with them. Can I share with you, there are so many distractions in this world. And I'm going to tell you for just a moment, this isn't even in my notes. This little joker right here, I love this thing. But there are times I hate this thing. Can I tell you, more divorces will happen because of this thing right here, probably, than anything else in the world. This is the number one distraction in any couple that I counsel almost every single week. This is it right here. Why? Because there's many things here. And it's not being present with the one we are with. Even sitting here in church, we've got our Bible ad for like, oh yeah, we're using our phone for our Bible, but let me check Facebook real quick. Let me check my fantasy scores real quick. All that, distractions from the main thing, to be at His feet and pursuing Him. So let me ask you, now that we've sat at His feet, we've heard His Word, what is your priority? You've got 24 hours, and in those 24 hours, you can make a difference, or you cannot. What is your priority? Let's pray together.